Comics. Comics. Welcome to ORP, otherwise known as Omen Revelations Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunley. And I'm your co-host, uh, Steve Sellers. On ORP, we like to talk about geek stuff, pop culture, including movies and TV series, as well as comic books and comic characters. Uh, but that's not all, is it, Mike? No, it's not, Steve. We're also writers for Omen, Omen Comics and Revelation Comics. So we like to talk about both writing and our comics. So podcast and chill with us. Today we're going to be celebrating the 80th anniversary of the Sentinel of Liberty, the first Avenger, Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America. Cap has been around, albeit with a brief hiatus, since 1941 under one name or another. I looked it up, actually. Steve Rogers has gone through 21 aliases during his tenure. I won't list them all here, but some of them are Nomad, The Man Without a Country, Lord of the Frozen Ice, which I thought was funny, and uh, even just simply The Captain. Uh, Steve Rogers is easily one of the most iconic characters in comics. IGN ranked him uh, sixth in their top 100 comic book heroes of all time in 2011. They ranked him second in their list of top the top 50 Avengers in 2012 and second in their top 25 best Marvel superheroes list in 2014. Some very well-deserved honors there. I think I could speak for both of us, though, when I can say I can do this all day. <laughs> Captain America is just one of those characters that I've always connected to and really enjoyed, but he's also a character who's been misunderstood at times. Though I think the MCU movies have made a huge difference by getting him down just right and getting Chris Evans to play him. Um, while Cap is a soldier, he's someone who's a moral paragon and a symbol of a nation first. Uh, he represents everything good about American values and fights so that others can live their highest aspirations. Cap is the closest that Marvel has to a character like Superman. He embodies everything that is right and good, but he still embodies the Marvel idea of heel heroes with beads of clay. Uh, why don't we talk about how Cap originally came about, Mike? Sure, but, but first, I have to fully agree with you about the Superman comparison. Um, Cap is definitely the kind of character that you look up to and rely on uh, to be a genuinely good person. You know, plus, we talked a little bit about on the Punisher episode how we both honor those who have served uh, and do serve in the military, and, and that just makes him all the more respectable. But let's get into the conception of Captain America. Writer Joe Simon came up with the idea for Captain America in 1940 and made a sketch of the character in costume. Cap's American flag-based uniform um, was made of a tightly woven chainmail that could deflect sharp objects and some small gauges of protect projectiles. And I always liked this bit. I thought it was interesting. Instead of a standard type of weapon, uh, like a gun or a sword, Captain America used a triangular-shaped shield as both an offensive and a defensive weapon. He also wore a belt equipped with pouches for quick access to a variety of useful items. Uh, Joe Simon wrote the name Super American at the bottom of the page, but in his words, Super American didn't work because there was just too many supers around. But he thought that Captain America had a good sound to it, and there weren't a whole lot of captains in the comics at the time, and it was as easy as that. 
Simon names Captain America's partner Bucky after his friend Bucky Pearson, who was a star on Simon's high school basketball team. As far as the persona of Captain America, Joe Simon said that Captain America was consciously a political creation, that he and Kirby Kirby were morally repulsed by the actions of Nazi Germany in the years leading up to the United States' involvement in World War II, and he felt that the war was inevitable. Simon went on to say that the opponents of the world uh, war were all well organized, and so he and Kirby wanted to have their say, too. That they did. I have to say that a Captain America suit is one of my favorite Kirby costumes ever, um, though I think it only came together once Cap got the traditional round shield and the neckwear. Uh, the triangle shield looked pretty good, but it just wasn't as functional as the Frisbee shield that Cap was able to throw later. Um, but we'll get into that. Um, but the basic things like the color scheme, the chainmail, the boots, um, they all came together really nicely. It, it was just in need of some refinement before it became the suit we all know today. So let's get into where Cap got started and showed how he got there. Sure. Uh, Cap's origin story, according to Marvel.com, uh, goes like this. Uh, good-hearted Steve Rogers was a poor orphan from the wrong side of the tracks in the days leading up to World War II, who enlisted in the Army to fight the Axis powers. But he was met with rejection due to his small size and underdeveloped physique. Apparently, he, he only weighed 98 pounds. Uh, Professor Abraham Erskine, a pioneer in the development of a super soldier for the United States, saw potential in Rogers and whisked him away into the Project Rebirth, which was the professor's bold experiment into enhancing the human body to its peak powers. Rogers found himself subjected to Erskine's treatments, a specialized serum and exposure to a unique form of radiation, and realized the professor's dream, becoming the world's first fully developed super soldier. Steve Rogers' body reached the uppermost limits of human perfection in strength, stamina, agility, and durability. With training from the military, he learned to use these traits in perfect unison in any given situation, which would have been enough. But he also maintains a strict regimen of exercise to bolster the serum's transformation of his physical form. In addition, Roger's charisma and shrewd decision-making ability are also recognized as being at the top level of any human on Earth. After receiving the super soldier serum, Steve watched in horror as a Nazi spy shot and killed Erskine, thereby ensuring that Rogers would be the last of his kind. The United States government moved swiftly to fashion Rogers into a living symbol of inspiration to the public at home and to soldiers abroad. So after his training, he debuted in a colorful patriotic uniform as Captain America. Operating out of the Army's Camp Lehigh in Virginia, Rogers posed as an ordinary soldier but conducted secret missions stateside and abroad as his alter ego to smash spies, saboteurs, and the occasional supervillain who threatened the country he so dearly loved. I honestly really like Captain America's origin, uh, more so than I do with a lot of heroes. Uh, Cap is not driven by tragedy, at least not at first. Uh, he's just a guy who believes in his country and he wants to serve others, and he wants a chance to fight for what he believes in. Uh, it's no different than probably a lot of people back in the early 1940s felt about the war. Uh, but what set him apart is how unflinchingly moral he is. He's selfless, never thinks about himself at all, and he doesn't hesitate to throw himself into a fight that he thinks is just. Well said. I, I think that definitely sets him apart from most other heroes and puts him in a rare class among even the exceptional. Captain America is among a select group of paragons of good and respectable characters. He is not just beloved by regular folks, he's held in high regard by other heroes and villains as well, like with how Superman or Wonder Woman are viewed. 
Uh, true. And even Dr. Doom, of all people, respects him on some level. So there's definitely that. Um, but there's one other character that uh, debuted around that time, and that was Cap's original partner, uh, James Buchanan uh, Bucky Barnes, who later became the Winter Soldier and eventually replaced Cap for a time when he came back later. Um, but we wouldn't see that Bucky for a long time. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get to Ed Brubaker. But in, in those early stories, uh, Buck was, uh, Bucky was a kid mascot who just met Cap during his time at Capla High. Um, Bucky caught Steve Rogers changing into his Cap costume and realized who he really was. And since then, Bucky became Cap's partner and he's considered one of the first kick sidekicks in comics. Um, although Dick Grayson preceded Bucky uh, as Robin by a year, um, he's easily uh, Cap's most memorable supporting character from the 40s. You know, actually, I think, I mean, aside from Robin, uh, Bucky is my favorite sidekick, and, and I think that is partly because he wasn't a sidekick. He, he was a partner. That was something that Marvel did differently, and I always appreciated it. But as you said, uh, we'll get into that in a bit. Um, Captain America Comics number 1 went on sale in December 20th, 1940, one year before the attack on Pearl Harbor, but a full year into World War II. On the cover, Captain America is given a fierce right cross to the jaw of Adolf Hitler like only Jack Kirby could draw, making it pretty clear how Simon and Kirby felt about the situation. That first issue sold nearly one million copies, which was pretty good for any magazine at the time. I, th I think, as I recall, that even outsold Time magazine and uh, continued to sell about a million copies each issue, which uh, shows that a majority of the readers really loved Captain America. However, some clearly objected and even hated him. Uh, Joe Simon said that uh, when the first issue came out, they got a lot of threatening letters and hate mail, but there was more than just mail. There were menacing groups of people hanging outside on the street, outside Timely Comics offices that proved to be so serious that police protection was posted with New York uh, New York Mayor uh, Fiorello LaGuardia personally contacting Simon and Kirby to give his support. <laughs> I have to say that incident is such a Jack Kirby moment. Uh, Kirby really hated fascism. I mean, in no small part because he was Jewish himself. But he was a tough guy from the streets of New York, and like Cap, he hated bullies. Uh, Kirby was the kind of man who could draw Cap punching out Hitler without batting an eye and not care what people thought of him. Um, there is quite a bit of Jack Kirby in Captain America, and I think that's why Kirby would return to Cap so many times over the years after uh, creating him. Kirby even spent a couple of years in World War II after, the, uh, after first creating Cap. Uh, he landed in Omaha Beach after D-Day, and he even drew recon maps while serving in the European theater. So Jack Kirby really was the kind of man that he drew comics about. Totally. All hail Jack the King Kirby. I, I have, for the most part, only heard good things about Kirby. I, I understand he was quite hospitable, too. He even welcomed a few fans into his house and talked with them. I, I don't know anybody else that did that. <laughs> uh, so, you know, well said on that. Um, but back to Cap's early years. Uh, Captain America's popularity inspired many Cap copycat Patriot-themed heroes, 40 of them in 1941 alone. But it also drew the attention of publisher MLJ, who would later become Archie Comics, who complained that Captain America's triangular shield too closely resembled the chest symbol of their shield character, which preceded Cap. In response, Timely Comics Inc. founder Martin Goodman had Simon and Kirby create a distinctive concave round shield for issue number two, which went on to become an iconic element of the character. As we mentioned in our Stan Lee episode, Stan Lee made his professional fiction writing 
debut in issue number three in the filler text-only story called Captain America Foils the Traitor's Revenge and added a very important element to Cap by introducing Captain America using his shield as a returning throwing weapon. Cap's shield can withstand extreme temperatures and pressure and rebound most forms of energy that hits it. It's composed of a vibranium and steel alloy, which makes it lightweight, nearly indestructible, and perfectly balanced. Captain America became so accustomed to using his shield that it ceased to be equipment and acts more like an extension of himself. With his enhanced strength and marksmanship, he can hit several opponents in quick succession and catch it on its return arc. Uh, I would just add one thing to that, and that is in the comics, um, it's actually an, an adamantium-vibranium mix, and it is unique on that basis. So, you know, that shield is unique. Um, but it is true that uh, patriotic heroes were a dime a dozen back then. Um, I guess it makes sense, given that it was wartime and those characters hit at just the right moment. Um, the other publishers probably wanted a piece of Captain America in some way or another. Um, I don't blame them for this. Um, most, but most of the copycats eventually failed after the war ended, though, with quite a few of them falling into the public domain uh, because of lapsed copyrights. Um, I think the round shield was the last big visual element that Cap needed before he really clicked. But the idea of using his shield as an offensive throwing weapon really set him apart from all the imitators. It also established that Cap was highly a highly skilled fighter who was the best in the world. Most people have a very hard time throwing that shield, never mind getting it to return to their hand. Actually, I didn't know about others having a hard time throwing the shield. And honestly, that just makes me appreciate Cap all the more as he makes it look so easy. Oh, he does. Um, I love how Cap's shield is treated with respect and reverence by everybody Cap meets. Um, it's treated as an important piece of Americana, like Babe's Roots Bat, uh, something that was actually pointed out by the president in an issue of Cap. Um, even uh, Daredevil is impressed by how well-constructed the shield is after trying it out once, comparing it to a Stradivarius violin. Uh, but Cap is the man who can make it truly sing. Uh, that's just beautiful. And those are some great comparisons, too. Um, but back to Cap's early years of publication. Um, after producing the first 10 issues of Captain America comics, the creative team of Joe Simon and Jack Kirby started doing work for National Allied Publications, who would later become DC Comics in late 1941, at which point uh, Alavision and S Sid Shores became the regular pencilers and inkers on the series. I guess they would often trade off between, um, uh, like, uh, one of them would do pencils on one issue and the other would do inks on that issue and they'd trade off on the next one Stuff like that. But Captain America could not be contained to just one title. In fact, between 1941 and 1946, Captain America was featured in all Winners Comics numbers 1 through 19, Marvel Mystery Comics numbers 80 through 84 and 86 through 92, USA Comics numbers 6 through uh, 17, and all Select Comics numbers 1 through 10. That's five titles. Not many comic book characters ever reach that kind of popularity. After the original Bucky was shot, wounded, and retired in 1948, Captain uh, in a 1948 Captain America story, he was succeeded by the current Captain America's girlfriend Betsy Ross, who became the superheroine Golden Girl. Uh, Captain America comics ran until the issue 73 in July of 1949, at which time the series was retitled Captain America's Weird Tales for two issues, with the final with the finale being a horror suspense anthology issue with no superheroes at all. 
Timely Comics, now going by Atlas Comics, attempted to revive its superhero titles when it reintroduced Captain America along with the original Human Torch and the Submariner in Young Men number 24 in 1953. Billed as Captain America Commie Smasher, <laughs> Captain America appeared during the next year in Young Men number 24 through 28, Men's Adventures number 27 through 28, and Issues number 76 through uh, 78 of another Captain America title. But Atlas attempt, but Atlas's attempted uh, superhero revival was just a commercial failure, and the title was canceled with Captain America number 78 in 1954. Uh, some interesting fact paints the stories in a different light now, and it was just because... Um, Basically, uh, Cap and Bucky were frozen in ice uh, after 1945, so some of these things had to change. Um, so it should be noted that Cap's post-1945 appearances were later retconned after Cap was thawed out in the modern age. Uh, so no less than three other people ended up replacing Cap in those stories. Uh, William Naslin, who was the spirit of 76, uh, he died in the mid-40s. Um, Jeff Mace, who was the original Patriot. Um, and the 1950s cap, uh, William Burnside, who became known as the Grand Director. So Betsy Ross was the girlfriend of Jeff Mace, not Steve Rogers, and the Bucky that was retired, I believe, was Fred Davis. Um, anyway, that allowed for the 1940s and 50s cap stories to still exist in continuity, while accounting for the fact that Steve Rogers was lying in a block of ice for decades. Um, I suggest reading the Captain America Patriot mini uh, by Carl Kiesel and Mitch Breitweiser if you want a really good story set in that era. Um, it covers what happened to William Nasland and how Jeff Mace became Cap. Uh, Betsy is a pretty important part of that book as well. And uh, 1950s Cap uh, would show up in Brubaker's run and also uh, under uh, Roger McKenzie. You know, Brubaker's uh, run on Cap is still one of my all-time favorite runs in comics, and it is the reason I fell in love with Captain America and Bucky. But I also loved how he wrote the history of Bucky, uh, the other Caps, and, and backstories into it. Uh, but I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself again. I, I keep doing that. Um, from 1941 to 1946, while on his various missions, Captain America soon captured the attention of the Red Skull, his evil counterpart in Germany, and the two formed a lasting enmity over the course of the war. But he was not Cap's only big bad guy. Toward the end of the war, Captain America and Bucky closed in on another enemy in Baron Zemo, a Nazi scientist who committed nearly as many atrocities against the Allies as the Red Skull, which is saying quite a bit. Also, in that first five years, Captain America became a part of another team with the Invaders. The team was composed of Captain America, his sidekick Bucky, who was quite formidable too, the original android Human Torch, and Torch's sidekick Toro, and, the, and Namor the Submariner. While on a mission to destroy an experimental plane that Baron Zemo coveted, the result of uh, the result of which was uh, Bucky was killed when the plane exploded, uh, and Steve fell in the fell into the ocean, was left frozen like a capsicle in the waters of uh, northern Atlantic. Uh, this left Cap and the rest of the world to believe that Bucky had perished in that explosion. Uh, very uh, good summation. Um, to clarify a bit, though, uh, the Baron Zemo who seemingly killed Bucky was Baron Heinrich Zemo, um, who is the father of the modern-day Baron Zemo. Um, Heinrich was the real Nazi of the Zemo family, and his battle against Cap got pretty bitter during his lifetime. Uh, now, I will say that my favorite Zemo is Heinrich's son, Helmut Zemo, who I'll talk about when we get to the modern-day Cap stuff. 
But I consider Helmut more an enemy of the Avengers as a whole than Cap in particular, uh, especially as the leader of the Thunderbolts and the Masters of Evil. Though Cap and Helmut have had their fights over the years, too. Uh, but let's talk about how Cap was revived, Mike. Sure. In uh, 1964, now under the Marvel Comics banner, Captain America was brought back again, but this time to stay. To explain how a World War II hero could come back in the mid-60s, Marvel Comics' Stan Lee and Jack Kirby came up with the following story. Due to Erskine's serum coursing through his veins, Cap's body went into suspended animation, once submerged in the frigid waters, and ended up encased in solid ice. As he stayed in suspended animation for decades until discovered by the event Avengers. Awakened and resuscitated, Cap's horror in realizing he'd lost Bucky and everyone he'd ever cared for quickly gave way to an unshakable sense of duty. And even though there were there was a lot more to adjust to, uh, suddenly being in the middle of the 1960s, uh, which is a, a quite a bit uh, different culture than Cap was used to. Oh, true. We can't overlook the man out of time part of Cap's character, uh, which is a defining aspect of who he is today. Uh, he's a man from t what is today 80 years in the past, uh, thrown into the modern world. At the same time, Cap is a smart man who has adjusted very quickly to our time. Uh, he doesn't come off as a redlick uh, mostly, reference jokes aside. Uh, Cap's values really reflect an earlier time, and he may sometimes count sound corny by our standards, but he's a quick study and he catches up fast. Uh, Cap is always a step ahead of most people around him, even after jumping decades into a future that he doesn't recognize at first. You can never underestimate Captain America because he will find a way to win in any situation you throw him into. That's a great point. It is almost impossible to not respect the fighters of the world. And I'm not talking about violence. I'm talking about a refusal to give up when met with opposition or hard times. Those that have an unyielding tenacity to accomplish their goals. And Captain America is, by any standard you measure, uh, one of those fighters. No doubt. Uh, anyway, much of Cap's adjustment period had happened in the pages of Avengers, though Cap would get his own title later on. Um, I'm going to try not to get too much into what happened to Cap in the Avengers series, except where it's a huge part of his storyline. Um, but early on it was. Uh, the early Avengers stories would bring back Heinrich Zemo as the leader of the original Masters of Evil. Uh, Heinrich used a formula of his own invention to slow his aging. And eventually Heinrich Zemo would die in battle with Cap and his son Helmut would invent uh, Zemo's uh, baronial title and his feud with Captain America. Uh, this gave Cap some closure, at least for a while. Uh, Cap also took in Rick Jones as a new partner. And yes, this is the same Rick Jones who was a longtime friend of the Hulk. Um, Rick got around a lot in the early days at Marvel. But uh, Cap trained Rick in martial arts, which is something that gets brought up in a lot of Rick's stories. Um, I'll also bring up one other thing with respect to Cap and the Avengers. Uh, Cap is undisputedly the team's leader, even when he's not officially the electric chairman, which happens a lot. In fact, there's been more than one occasion where Cap held the team together when it otherwise would have fallen apart. Um, the first and most notable example is when Cap led the kooky quartet of Hawkeye, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver after all the founders had quit. Um, Cap made a group of ex-villains into a bona fide Avengers team, and it's entirely because of Cap's training and leadership. I, I can't think of any other Avenger who could possibly have accomplished that, especially with two very difficult people like Clint and Pietro on that team. But they all respect Cap to this day, and they would follow him without question. Uh, Hawkeye especially thinks very highly of Cap, and he regards him as a mentor and a friend, uh, even if uh, Hawk might trash talk, trash talk him on occasion. Um, that is an impressive achievement for any leader, but 
Cap pulled it off. That is very impressive. <clears throat> I think it's because, unlike other leaders, Cap really sees the value in a unit or a team working as one as he leads. And he does so not just with brilliant strategy and martial skill, but by example, and that makes him easy to follow. Plus, I feel like Cap appreciates his individual team members and their value on a personal level, which is why I think he was able to keep the kooky quartet together. Uh, Steve Rogers is a real natural and supportive leader. Compare that to leaders like Batman, who, while a brilliant tactician and for a rare few a great friend, often leads by coming up with a plan and expecting people to follow it just by doing what he says uh, when he says without question and with just enough information to do their job. A majority of the time, he keeps most of what's going on a secret from those he leads. And I don't get the impression, I don't get that impression from what I know of Captain America. I see him talking openly to his teammates, aside from things he's required to keep secret by duty, and working with them on a more personal level. I mean, what do you think about that, Steve? Oh, that sounds accurate to me, especially when you talk about keeping secrets. Um, Cap is not a guy who barks orders at all the time, though he'll get serious in a combat situation. Uh, he's someone who sees the potential in the people he meets, and he always works to help them reach their potential. He genuinely cares about every single one of the people under his command, and he fights for them. And, you know, he'll help them when he's having personal problems. Um, they sense that uh, loyalty to them, and they'll give him their all in return because they know Cap respects people. Um, Frank Miller described Cap in uh, Daredevil Born Again as, quote, a man with a voice that can command a god and does. Unquote. <laughs> and this is true. But Thor follows Cap because Cap has earned Thor's respect as a warrior like no other mortal ever has. Not to mention that Cap is a smart tactician who knows exactly how to use the resources he has in any situation. I mean, he's just great at inspiring uh, loyalty. Uh, somewhere around this time, though, uh, span, uh, Cap spun off into his own adventures. Um, this started in a book called uh, Tales of Suspense, which he shared with Iron Man. Um, Cap guest starred in that book at first, uh, getting his own segment with Tales of Suspense number 59 in uh, 1964. Eventually, Tales of Suspense was retitled as Captain America at Captain America 100, moving Iron Man over to his own book and his own number one. Um, Lee and Kirby were the creative team on most of those stories, with Kirby having drawn all but two of those issues. You know, just as a quick thought, as a guy in the comics business... Um, turning Tales of Suspense into a cat book, um, I mean, I, that, that makes sense, I guess, but I mean, having, having the first issue be number 100 seems a bit misleading. I mean, as you said, he clearly shared those 100 issues with Iron Man. It implies a longer history than there actually was and could be at least one of the reasons that they did it, but... It seems to me that Tales of Suspense should have just been canceled or used to feature other characters rather than having the title changed to Captain America. I think I think it's pretty clear that Cap could have held his own in his own title, starting with issue number one, like they did with Iron Man. Uh, you raise a good point, and I think they probably could have as well. Um, it might sound strange today in an industry where new first issues are the norm, but back then, a series having a high issue number meant something. Uh, it showed that a book had staying power. But Tales of Suspense wasn't the only time uh, Marvel did this. Um, Thor was Journey into Mystery until the title changed the focus of the series on Thor. But Thor wasn't in many of those stories. Uh, Journey into Mystery was a title that stretched back to the Atlas days. Um, I don't think Cap needed the extra numbering either, but it's hard to say what Stan was thinking at the time when it happened. Um, anyway, around this time, Cap was typically dealing with S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA, 
which were Marvel's answer to James Bond stories. Um, you'd have occasional villains like Batroc the Leaper, uh, who is a mercenary and a master of Savate. But more often than not, Cap was fighting essentially modernized na Nazis like Hydra. Uh, the Red Skull would also come back in those stories, once again pushing it, positioning himself as Cap's greatest nemesis. Um, this period also introduced another major uh, character into Sharon's, Cap's life, and that's Sharon Carter. Uh, Sharon debuted as a nameless agent called only Agent 13. However, Cap eventually learns uh, who she is, as well as her connection to another past love of his life, Peggy Carter, who Steve Rogers knew in World War II. Um, Sharon and Peggy's relationship has been retconned a lot. Uh, they were sisters at first, and then Peggy gradually became Sharon's great aunt as time slid by. But that's time in comics for you. Um, but Sharon became a huge love interest for Cap in the book for a long time, uh, both in the Silver Age and then with Wade and much later with Brubaker. But after uh, Tales of Suspense ended, um, Kirby moved off of Captain America, and we start to see other artists leave their mark on Cap. Uh, you'd get some pretty well-known and highly regarded artists on the book, including Gene Colan, John Buscema, Jim Steranko, and John Romita Sr. However, you also got one of the most uh, important Cap characters around this time, Sam Wilson the Falcon. Uh, Gene Colan decided that he wanted to draw a black hero, and he approached uh, Stan Lee with the idea. Stan quickly approved the idea, he really liked it, and they created the Falcon. Um, the original idea was that Sam Wilson was a social worker who wanted to improve the lives of inner city youth, uh, but that backstory changed a few times in later runs and it's gotten retconned uh, more than once. Um, Falcon came onto the scene in the middle of a huge storyline where the Red Skull finds the Cosmic Cube, which gives the Skull godlike powers. I don't know why, this keeps coming back. Uh, the Skull switches bodies with Cap in this story, and Cap, while in the Skull's body, is sent to the Island of the Exiles, um, of, which are a bunch of Nazis, where he meets up with the Falcon. So uh, Cap and Falcon team up to defeat the Nazis. The Skull is defeated. And then uh, Sam and, and Cap become partners and friends ever since. Uh, Falcon even co-headlined the book for a few years. He's since become a very enduring character, and he's only become bigger in recent years. He really has. I, I think that aside from him just being a great character who was also respectable because of his moral fiber, it's because Sam Wilson or those connected to him, like his nephew Jim Wilson, who was the first openly HIV positive character, uh, well, it's one of them. Yeah, they, they really hit some truly relevant notes in comics and pop culture uh, at the time. I mean, a big one came in his first appearance in Captain America number 117 in 1969 as the first African-American superhero in mainstream comic books. What's more, he wasn't a sidekick or a subordinate. He was Cap's partner and was, re and was respected as such. I, I like that Cap does that with, these, with the people that work with him. I think that's why Sam is really the perfect person uh, to replace Steve Rogers as Captain America, but we'll get into that in a couple of minutes, too. Uh, for sure. Uh, Sam has earned his wings as Cap and then some, uh, both in the comics and on screen. Uh, though, since you bring him up, uh, Jim Wilson's a character I do want to talk about when we get around to the Hulk. Uh, Jim was another character like Rick Jones, who's probably more associated with the Hulk, even if he had ties to Cap. Um, but getting back to Cap, uh, the next big run to come around was written by Steve Englehart, who was also writing the Avengers around that time. Um, although not a personal favorite run of mine, it was a run that it was hugely influential on the writers who came on the book later. Um, Ed Brubaker especially cites Englehart as an influence on his Cap run, which is not small praise. Um, pro but probably the storyline that Englehart is best known for is Secret Empire, where Cap and, and Falcon investigate a conspiracy uh, by a group by that name. 
After a series of events, including a crossover with the original X-Men, uh, Cap traces the conspiracy and discovers who its leader is. When Cap unmasks the number one agent of the Secret Empire, Cap discovers that he is none other than the President of the United States. Keep in mind that this story was written very much as a reflection of Watergate, so it's highly likely that the president was intended as a stand-in for Richard Nixon. Um, this reveal is so shocking to Steve Rogers that he resigns as Captain America and takes on a new identity called Nomad. Uh, eventually, he does reclaim the mantle of Cap, but at this time, he's shaken to his core and uncertain about how he should proceed as a hero. Dude, when, when Steve Rogers quit being Captain America in 1974 and took the name Nomad, it really changed the character. Uh, Steve Rogers is a patriot to his core, and he was just shattered by that disillusioning revelation. And, and he just gave up heroism altogether. I mean, uh, you, it, it's an understandable uh, response, really, uh, in the wake of such a revelation. In fact, it took a confrontation with Clint Barton, disguised as the Golden Archer, to force Rogers to see that he can't just give up. In response, Rogers takes on the name Nomad because it means man without a country and makes a new dark blue and yellow uniform with no patriotic mar markings on it at all. This identity is short-lived, however, lasting a whole four issues with varying degrees of success. He apparently even trips over his own cape at one point. <laughs> uh, but in 1975, Rogers realized that he could be champion, he could champion America's ideals without blindly supporting its government and once again became Captain America. Right, I, I think this is a point that needs to be understood about Cap. Uh, Cap does not represent the government, although he is an American soldier. He represents the American ideal and the American dream. And when Cap's ideals come into conflict with government corruption, Steve Rogers will be the first person to stand firm against it. The nomad identity was a clear statement that he'll always stand for what he believes, even when he believes his government is wrong. And even after he returned as Cap, the nomad name stuck around. Uh, there would be other nomads after Steve Rogers. Uh, Jack Monroe, the 1950s Bucky, and uh, Ricky Barnes, who was the counter-Earth Bucky from Heroes Reborn, both took the name. Um, but after uh, Englehart left uh, Captain America, uh, Jack Kirby came back to the book, um, this time as writer, artist, and editor. Um, the result of the story was uh, Mad Bomb, which was a story about an aristocratic group that tries to achieve its goals through mind control. They use a weapon that drive people into insanity and violence, and I'm amazed at how that suddenly become re relevant again in recent years. It's crazy and mind-blowing stuff. Um, Kirby also did a one-shot issue called uh, Bicentennial Battles, where Cap travels through American history and gets caught up in weird time travel adventures. Um, it also features a design for a Revolutionary War-era Captain America by Kirby, which Roger Stern would develop into a full character in a uh, Sentinel of Liberty story years later. This run is weird, but it's got all the energy and imagination you'd expect from Kirby Unleashed. It's also the, the last time Kirby would handle the character. Um, but there would be a shakeup and, and things uh, stop being fun at one point. Uh, for a while, Sharon Carter is presumed dead. Um, and it's a big, big deal. In a, in a Roger McKenzie story, she infiltrates a neo-Nazi group called National Force, which is led by a man called the Grand Director. The Grand Director turns out to be William Burnside, the 1950s cap. Um, but the Grand Director is working for uh, someone else. He's been brainwashed by Dr. Faustus, who is an agent of the Red Skull. Uh, Sharon gets caught and is brainwashed as well. Now, Faustus is defeated, but, uh, but he ends up killing all of his pawns in the last-ditch effort. He burns them all alive. Um, Cap believes that Sharon dies as well 
after he's shown a videotape of her burning to death like other people have been. And we find out later that the videotape was fake, but Sharon stays dead for well over a decade. Her memory haunts Cap for quite some time after this, at least until she's brought back. Um, now, not too long after this, we got a powerhouse creative team back on Captain America for a short time. Um, and they were none other than Roger Stern and John Byrne. And for a brief shining moment, they revitalized the character. They started off with a story featuring Wolfgang von Strucker, who, where they do a bit of creative housekeeping. Um, they also expanded the supporting cast, putting Steve Rogers in a brownstone house with a group of neighbors. The most uh, interesting supporting character around this time was Bernie Rosenthal, who was a love interest that stuck around for quite a few runs. Uh, she eventually becomes a lawyer due to Cap's influence, and Bernie even recently occasionally shows up once in a while in modern books. Um, but there are two stories from the Stern Burn run that tend to really stand out, though. One was a story where Captain America is drafted into becoming a third-party presidential candidate. The reason the story works is that the story is about why Cap decides not to run for office and why he feels that he shouldn't be involved in the political process. Um, Cap doesn't believe that he can be an effective symbol that can stand for everyone if he openly takes political sides. It's a really good one-and-done story that addresses a pretty big question that nobody had tackled with Cap before. Captain America seems to really see things click, like just crystal clearly, even even when others do not. And I think that realizing that he can do much more as a symbol for everyone rather than as a champion of a few is just one shining example of that. Oh, very true. This is why I find Cap as a symbol so fascinating. He's able to say so much that way. Um, anyway, the other memorable story from Stern and Byrne is their last big story. Um, the original Union Jack and his daughter uh, Spitfire, uh, who are now uh, retired, uh, call for Cap for help against an old enemy. That enemy is Baron Blood, a Nazi vampire that is also the brother of Union Jack. The result is a gothic horror story as Cap goes to England to hunt down the vampire before he can kill Cap's old friends. By the end of the story, Union Jack is dead, and Cap is forced to behead Baron Blood to save Spitfire. We also get a new Union Jack uh, by the end, a working-class hero named Joe Chapman, and he's still Union Jack today. I, I have not personally read that, but I love me some superhero horror, and that one sounds fun. I'm, I'm interested to find out what Cap is like in a horror situation. Oh, it's an unusual fit, but it works here. Um, it's a great classic story from Stern and Byrne, and Byrne's art is gorgeous. Um, however, the context of the conversation around Baron Blood's death is, is sometimes missed now. Um, Cap takes no joy in killing even an enemy as evil as Blood, and it is something he does reluctantly to save lives. Uh, he even shows regret that he had to do what he did, even if it was necessary. Um, Cap is capable of killing when he needs to. I mean, he is a soldier, but it's always as an absolute last resort to save lives. Um, some writers tend to justify Cap killing more often because he's a soldier, but I think that that misses the point of the character. Um, if we learned anything from this story, it's that Cap values life, and he's seen enough depth to last a lifetime. Um, he's not eager to add to that count. Uh, this is one of the things that separates Cap from people like John Walker, but we'll get into that when, with the next writer that we'll talk about. You know, unfortunately, knowing that Captain America has issues with killing is not so obvious to a new reader jumping on. Uh, knowing that Cap is a wartime soldier, it was really easy for me to assume that Cap was a killer by definition. Uh, something cemented when I read uh, Brubaker's Captain America, um, but I, I suppose we'll get into that in a minute too. 
Uh, we definitely will. Um, you're right about the new readers problem. Uh, if you come into a run like that, you assume that's who he's supposed to be without the benefit of context. And and then this is why this is why looking at the whole history is important and why we do what we do on this podcast. Um, but speaking of which, uh, the definitive Captain America writer, in my view, is a man named Mark Ruinwald. Um, there have been a, quite a few good cap runs over the years, uh, both before and after this. However, I can't think of a run that added as much as the Gruenwald run did, or hit the core of the character as deeply as this run did. Um, the Gruenwald run is also the longest in the character's history. Mark Gruenwald wrote the book for over 10 years, guiding the book from Captain America 307 to 443. In wow. terms of... Yeah. In terms of longevity, the only Marvel runs I can think of that stretched longer were Chris Claremont on the X-Men, who was on for 17 years, and Peter David on the Incredible Hulk, who stayed on for 12 years. Uh, Grunewald created numerous characters with real staying power on Cap, uh, many of whom have gone on to appear in the MCU. Uh, some of them include Crossbones, as well as Flash Smasher, John Walker, and Battlestar, and the Ultimatum organization from Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Other ideas he introduced are the Watchdogs, uh, Superior and the Femazons, uh, Free Spirit, uh, the Scourge of the Underworld, and others. But Grunewald also created the Serpent Society and gave them depth, uh, making them every bit as interesting a villain group as the Flash's rogues. My favorite new character of all of them was uh, Rachel Layton, a.k.a. Diamondback. Um, Diamondback was a member of the Serpent Society who reforms and becomes Cap's long-term girlfriend. Uh, Cap inspires her to be a better person, and Diamond gives Cap a more realistic perspective. Um, that was a years-long romance arc that led to some great issues, and it led to Diamond reforming for a while. Um, this includes a done-in-one story where Diamond back en en enlists her friends in the Serpents to make sure her first date with Cap doesn't get interrupted by people trying <laughs> to, to get Cap to save them. Um, I absolutely love Cap and Diamond together, and I, I prefer them to Cap and Sharon, if I'm completely honest. It really is a testament to Cap's character that by setting an example with his words and deeds, that he's able to get full-on supervillains to reform. I mean, that is shining a light in dark places done right. Oh, definitely. And that's one of the things I most love about Cap. Um, Grunewald also took a number of existing villains in Cap's stable and made them more interesting. Uh, this includes Viper, who uh, was previously known as Madame Hydra, and uh, Batroc, who starts to see Cap's point of view and reforms as well for a little while. But Gruel also took a look at the Red Skull, reimagining him as an embodiment of evil rather than just a Nazi villain. Um, Skull's organization was also much more thought out, um, acting through agents and dummy organizations as part of a larger plan. Um, Crossbones ended up being a huge addition to the Skull's organization, um, giving Cap a tough physical opponent as well as a good supporting character for the Skull. Uh, Skull would also become truly Cap's physical equal, um, possessing the body of a Cap clone and gaining the power of the Super Soldier Serum. Uh, all the villains had an ideological angle to them, too, uh, representing different threats to America in an allegorical sense. Wow. Um, that's actually pretty impressive. Uh, making allegorical characters is not an easy task, especially when it has to be entertaining as well. I mean, there's there's a certain amount of tact required to, to not make it preachy or too obvious, and, and it sounds like he did it well. Oh, yes, he did. Uh, one Gruenwald story that comes to mind is an early Flag Smasher story where Cap wins in part by defeating the villain's argument. Um, there's still the obligatory superhero fight, and Flag Smasher loses that, but before that, Cap tries to reason with him and talk him into surrendering. Um, Cap wins on a philosophical level, not just by being a better fighter, though we can do both. 
Um, but there's a lot more I could discuss about Grunewald's cap run. Um, I think most people best remember the captain. Um, th that was the title of the story where John Walker replaces Steve Rogers as Captain America. The whole point of this story is to show why Steve Rogers' character is such an important part of who Cap is by showing someone who is unworthy in the role. Um, Walker lacks the humility, kindness, and compassion of Steve Rogers, and because of that, we see him fail in the role over and over again. Uh, Walker also serves the government over the interests of the people, and his blindness leads him to making terrible mistakes. Uh, Steve Rogers decides to take up an identity called the Captain and set things right with that. And by the end, uh, Cap fights Walker and confronts the Red Skull, who engineered the entire thing from the shadows. And at the end, Steve Rogers earns the right to be Captain America again. What a great idea for a Cap story. Uh, not just anybody with a super soldier serum could be Captain America. Captain America is the most effective because of his character, and there just aren't many like him. In many ways, Steve Rogers had his greatest assets long before Operation Rebirth in the form of his heart and character. Oh, yes. Uh, this is what the MCU films understood. But despite that, I will admit that not everything from the Gruenwald run is gold. Uh, there are some silly stories here and there, especially towards the end. Um, you have a weird story where Cap becomes a werewolf, as just one example. Um, you also get unintentionally funny panels, some of which have become memes. I command you to wank is one notable one. But uh, that happens when you write a book for 10 years. Um, most of it is so amazing that you can forgive the dumb moments when you find them. Um, in my mind, nobody contributed more to this character than Gru, and that, that forgives a lot. Um, but Grunewald was a difficult act to follow, uh, but Mark Wade managed to pull it off. Um, he pulled it off so well, in fact, that Wade managed to achieve something no other Cap writer has ever done as far as I'm aware. Um, he's written three separate runs on Captain America. Um, Wade didn't invent as much as Grunewald, and, and he didn't get the spy adventure down like Brubaker did, but Wade had, did have one advantage. He understood Cap as a character, and he was able to make him cool and fun to read. Uh, Ron Carney came on the on, on, on the art early on, and they were a great team on this book. Um, now, Wade had to do a bit of house cleaning first, and that was a story called Operation Rebirth. When Grunewald left the book, uh, Cap was technically dead, poisoned by his own super soldier serum. Uh, Wade was not only able to bring Cap back, he did so in an interesting way by forcing Cap and the Skull to work together. He also brought back Sharon Carter, who'd previously been thought to be killed. However, it all ended up being part of a scheme by the Skull to get the Cosmic Cube again. <laughs> uh, Cap defeats the Skull again, but at the cost of some of his trust because he had to fight members of the U.S. military along the way. Actually, you know, that, that story where Steve Rogers was being killed by the Super Soldier Serum uh, was the only story on that Gruenwald, Gruenwald run that I, I've read. Uh, it was an interesting one, too. I mean... Cap is essentially told that every time he uses his abilities, the serum would bring him that much closer to death. Uh, knowing that fact made Cap's heroism in the story all that much more glorious as he risks his life over and over again until it finally kills him. I, I, I love that story. Oh, I've read bits and pieces of Fighting Chance, and I think the premise is a really strong one. Uh, Cap faces death with the same honor and dignity he's always had, and I think both he and Grunewald go out on a respectable note. Um, then Wade gives Cap a funeral issue, and he's brought back through the machinations of the Skull. Um, Operation Le Rebirth leads into a story called Man Without a Country, where the machine smith manages to frame Cap for treason. Uh, this leaves Cap having to clear his name with the help of Sharon Carter. 
it feels a lot like Cap, uh, the Winter Soldier in the tone and style of the story. Uh, following that, there's one more issue where Sharon shows Cap what happened to her while she was presumed dead. Um, I feel like Cap and Sharon's dynamic is where this book was at its strongest, and it was a lot of fun while it lasted. Um, unfortunately, Wade and Garney were interrupted by the Heroes Reborn event, where uh, Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee were in charge of the main Marvel characters for a year. However, with Heroes Return, they came back, uh, Wade and Garney, if not as good as they were in their first run. Um, there are some really good issues early on, though, and I love the Japan story in the first issue. But then Wade gets the bright idea of making Cap lose his shield, and it was a bit predictable and it played out a little too long. Um, it's not bad, though, and the Cap Mania storyline uh, that followed was actually pretty decent. Um, Garney eventually leaves and he's replaced by Andy Kubert, who's also really good in this book. But I think the best story out of Wade's second run is a story focusing on the Red Skull's origin. Um, it's a good study of evil and shows how the Great Depression shaped the Red Skull, much like it did for Cap. Now, after this, uh, the quality goes down for a while, though there are some bright spots here and there. Um, Dan Jurgens did a run that was solid, not exceptional. Um, John May Reber and John Cassidy did a short run about Cap in a post-9-11 world and how he adjusted that. Um, I mainly like that for the art, which is gorgeous. Um, nobody draws a chainmail like John Cassidy. Um, Christopher Priest had a good run on a spinoff series called Captain America and the Falcon, um, though it was overlooked and got canceled, uh, but it was very good to Sam Wilson. Um, aside from that, though, there isn't a whole lot to talk about until we get to Ed Brubaker, who I know you've been wanting to talk about. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Brubaker came into cap right after doing a really strong run on the Batman titles for DC, uh, and I recommend those. Um, his strengths mainly are in spy and noir stories, and the spy angle work for Cap. Uh, Steve Epting, uh, the artist, had just come back to Marvel after having done some stellar work at CrossGen, which improved his arts by leaps and bounds. The two of them together were a combination that was impossible to ignore. You know, while I was a fan of Captain America before, reading the Winter Soldier trade from Brubaker's run and the Red Menace trade that followed it really cemented Cap and Bucky as all-time favorite characters of mine. Uh, plus, while I have not read nearly as much Captain America as you have, Steve, um, Captain America, the Winter Soldier Ultimate Collection is one of my favorite comics, just period. Oh, I can totally understand why you feel that way. I mean, the talent on the book was undeniable. Uh, some people really love Brubaker's run, uh, and in fairness, I, I can see why, um, even if I personally have some quibbles with it. Um, Brubaker brought a very strong espionage element to his run that nobody else has done nearly as well, either before or since. And I can't deny that his reinvention of Bucky as the Winter Soldier was masterful. Brubaker's run is best to me when Bucky is the star of the book instead of Steve Rogers, in my view. You know, I, I have to agree with that 100%. Looking back on the series, some of my favorite parts were the flashbacks of the secret solo missions Bucky would carry out, and others where Bucky, rather than Cap, was the one who saved the day. In my eyes, this destroyed any perceptions I might have I might have had as Bucky as a sidekick. He was in every way an equal partner despite his age. Oh, true. Uh, Brubaker understood there were kid soldiers who were forced to grow up fast in war, uh, some kids back then lied about their age to enlist. Um, Brew also understood that Bucky had to be a really amazing kid and a good soldier to be able to hold his own with Cap and the Invaders and not die. Uh, Brubaker's Bucky wasn't just a sidekick, as you say, uh, but an experienced commando who was good at his job. And then he grew up becoming a cyborg, and then he got even better. And, yeah. and Bucky had to step up fast as he took over the role of Captain America. Um, the death of Cap's story floored a lot of people at the time, including me, really. 
even though I knew the original Cap was eventually going to be back. But Bucky was such a compelling character that Brew was able to make it work. And Bucky's dynamics with uh, Black Widow and Falcon were extremely good in that run. Um, however, I think feel like Brubaker has won Achilles' heel in an otherwise great run. Um, to me, he doesn't have a good grasp of who Steve Rogers is. Um, and this is a problem that a lot of post-Wade writers have with his character. Uh, it's not exclusive to Brubaker. And that is that uh, Brubaker saw him as a soldier first and foremost. Um, and in the first issue, Cap is casually killing people. And in my view, Cap should never treat killing as a casual thing, um, even though he is a soldier. Um, because of that, I honestly preferred the Captain Bucky issues, uh, because I think that's what Brubaker want, most wanted to do anyway. Um, Bucky was a better character for all the deep espionage and black types of, uh, ops types of stories that Brubaker's really good at. You know, not having the same exposure to Cap as you did, I totally bought Captain America as a soldier first, and I totally embraced him as a willing killer for that reason. But hearing your perspective on how Cap's strength of character has come to affect the lives of so many others, I, I can totally see why you'd have that objection. Oh, that's totally fair. Um, Brubaker is a writer that I respect highly, and, and I regard this as just a disagreement rather than an issue I have with him as a writer. Uh, so let me wrap this up in a positive light. Um, Brew, to me, is unquestionably the definitive writer on Bucky Barnes, and no one else has even come close. Uh, the death of Cap Arc, the return of 50s Cap, the fight between Bucky and Zemo, all of them great stories. Um, beyond that, I don't think there's much to, to say on the comic side of things. Um, there were stories I liked early on. Um, Nick Spencer's run is mainly known for making some very controversial decisions. Um, this includes a story where Cap was turned into a Hydra agent by the Cosmic Cube. Long story, don't ask. Um, this was undone, and Wade came back after Spencer left uh, with the idea of moving away from those ideas, which was understandable. Um, Wade brought along Chris Somney from Daredevil, um, and uh, I would say listen to our Daredevil episode for more on that. Um, they did a, a Widow, Black Widow run that was really good, and then uh, Wade and Somney took over Cap. The first uh, three issues of the Cap run I honestly liked a lot. Um, the one standout issue was a story where Cap fights Craven the Hunter, and that's really good. Um, I also like the first uh, Wade-Somni uh, Cap issue, which is a very wholesome and back-to-basic story where Cap fights a, a domestic terrorist group called Rampart. After Craven, though, it gets pretty weird <laughs> with a time travel story, and it just never really clicked for me. Though I feel like even at the book's worst, Wade still got who Steve Rogers was, and that's always where he shines on Cap. Um, but I'll admit I have not followed the most recent comics featuring Cap, so I can't talk about them. But why don't we get into his TV and film appearances, Mike? I'd be glad to. Um, Captain America was the first Marvel characters to appear in media outside comics with the release of the 1944 movie serial Captain America. But it was Captain America in name only. Um, instead of a World War II soldier with the super soldier serum, he was just a typical vigilante, kind of in a pulp hero type of fashion. His nemesis was the scarab and his love interest and sidekick was Gail Richards. Uh, Captain America's secret identity was District Attorney Grant Gardner, and he didn't have a shield. He he instead carried a gun and killed people without hesitation, like, like maybe the, the shadow or the spider might have done. That movie makes some really strange choices, doesn't it? Um, it's almost like someone had an idea for an interesting character and just stuck the Captain America name on it, maybe because they had the license. But here's the thing. I actually don't have a problem with the Grant Gardner character in theory. Um, I don't have a problem with him carrying a gun, and I don't have a problem with his methods. It's 
just not what you'd expect from Captain America, and it's not what Steve Rogers would do. But for a new character, that's fine. I mean, the costume is even pretty decent, and I suspect it may even have influenced Bucky's cap costume. Uh, Bucky cares that he's a pistol in much the same way Gardner does, down to the same pose. Um, it's an interesting film, even if it's far from comics accurate. Yeah, that's a fair take on it. I, I think if he was just given a different name, uh, he could have gone on to be a good pulp-style vigilante. Uh, the next time we would see Captain America would be the 1966 animated television show called The Marvel Superheroes. Captain America was one of five featured superheroes that got their own weekly segment, including the Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, the Mighty Thor, and the Submariner. Uh, they were they were largely straightforward adaptations of not just the characters' solo stories uh, from Tales of Suspense, but also several stories from the Avengers series as well. I gotta say, I, I have seen some of these back in the '80s, and they are so bad. It was it was the type of animation where the areas of the character's mouth was done with an actual person's lips over still images with super cheesy lines like the Mandarin's "Sit back and observe how helpless you are" in a really bad Chinese accent to Iron Man. Oh my! God. <laughs> I will admit I've not seen it, though I have seen clips from that show. The one thing I will credit it for is that the animation looks like it was drawn by Jack Kirby, which goes a long way with me. But it was still pretty early days of the animation, and they probably hadn't figured everything out yet. In my opinion, I I'm guessing it had more to do with budget than it had actual technology at the time. And, and I say this because uh, just the following year, in 1967, they made an animated Spider-Man show that was way better animation-wise. In great part because they didn't have an actual person's lips speaking over the animation. <laughs> but um, after that, there was an unauthorized indie film called Three Dev Adam or, or Three Giant Men in 1973 that was a bastardization of both Captain America and Spider-Man who was portrayed as a supervillain in charge of a gang but I don't even think that film counts <laughs> uh, Captain America Pill appeared in two made-for-TV movies that aired on CBS in 1979 called Captain America and Captain America 2 Death Too Soon both starring Red Brown as Captain America but this was not the Steve Rogers or the Captain America we know and there were many things that are different First of all, this story is set in 1979, and Steve isn't the original Captain America. His father, a 1940s government agent, was. And even then, that was only by nickname. Uh, Steve Rogers gets in an accident, and he's given the experimental flag formula, which is the acronym Full Latent Ability Gain, uh, that gives him his powers. He drives around in a souped-up van and a cheesy-looking motorcycle with a round windshield made of jet-aged plastic plastics that he can take off and use as a shield. Ultimately, neither of the made-for-TV movies did all that well, and we're just another in a long line of failures getting Marvel Comics off the page and onto the screen. You know, people praise Marvel for the MCU, but they ignored the flop after flop that came before it while they figured out how to do it properly. Everything you brought up is true. Um, I, I have to admit it. Um, those 70s cap films were really goofy, and there were ridiculous things in them, as you described. But I can't get too mad at them. It was Red Brown as Captain America. Um, now, this calls for some explanation. Um, I'm a longtime fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000. If you've ever seen that show, you might know one of their better episodes where they mock a laughably bad film called Space Mutiny. 
Reb Brown was the star of Space Mutiny, which is where most people probably know him from outside of Cap. It is a stupid science fiction film. But Brown plays everything over the top, and it is really funny without intending to be, especially when he starts screaming. Um, his Cap films are dumb in about the same way, and I can enjoy them in a so-bad-it's-good way. Now, imagine Adam West's Batman if the comedy was unintentional, and that's Reb Brown as Cap. Um, I'll also add that Sir Christopher Lee is the villain in one of those films, and Lee's always worth watching, even a bad film. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, I have to say, your Adam West reference there is how I'm going to think of Red Brown from now on. <laughs> the next couple of times we see Cap is in a 1980 public service announcement uh, on energy conservation, in which he battled the thermal thief, the wattage waster, and the cold air crook. I haven't seen it, but it sounds hilarious. Next, the Sentinel of Liberty would be the guest star in two animated Marvel TV shows, including 1981's Spider-Man in the episode The Capture of Captain America, and in two episodes of the 1981 animated series Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, called Seven Little Superheroes and Pawns of the Kingpin. But it would be another nine years until we would see him on the screen again. I don't think I've ever seen any of those. Um, maybe the Amazing Friends episode since I did watch that, but if so, I don't remember it now. It's been a long time since I've seen that. But it wasn't Cap's best time on the screen, I think it's fair to say. I, I don't think anyone took the character seriously at all back then, and the Red Brown films didn't help much with that. <laughs> I don't imagine they did. The the very the first feature length Captain uh, America film we got was in the 1990s Captain America, which, despite its monumental failures in special effects and production, actually tried to stick to the source material. We see Steve Rogers uh, turn turn into Captain America and fight in World War Two. Uh, we see him being found decades later in the frozen ice and having to adjust to modern times and even battle the Red Skull. One thing that really killed it for me, though, was how they handled the shield and Captain America throwing it. Uh, it, it had that same uh, crappy shield design from the Red Brown uh, series that I thought was pretty just horrible. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they would show him throwing it at, at a person and then cut to a scene where now the shield is suddenly coming up from behind the person and hitting them. It, it looked terrible. Although it was originally intended for a theatrical release, release, it only came out on home video and now stands with the 1994 Fantastic Four movie as one of the worst comic book movies ever made. But soon Captain America would be back in animated action just two years later. Oh, yeah. I, I do remember the Matt Salinger film, and I saw it a couple of times. To be fair, it was better than anything they'd previously done with the character on screen. Admittedly, that is not saying much. We are talking about two Red Brown films here. <laughs> I, I have no idea why they made the Red Skull Italian. That was a weird decision to me. But aside from that, I thought that they did a reasonable job with adapting the source material. Um, the problem is that the execution wasn't that great, even if they got most of the basics of the character. I think that's where the film failed more than anything. They just didn't have the budget or the production values that we've seen with the Chris Evans films. Honestly, when compared to the MCU's Captain America, I imagine all other versions would fall short. Uh, but we'll get into that in a few minutes, too. In, in the 90s, Marvel had several animated series going with their characters, and Cap showed up in all of them in one way or another, even if it was just in a mention. Captain America appeared in two episodes of X, the X-Men, the animated series from 1992, including a brief blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameo as a capsicle in the Red Dawn episode from before uh, Omega Red wakes up. 
There's an alternate version of Captain America appeared in a cameo of the X-Men episode One Man's Worth. In that episode, it's it's a different timeline where Charles Xavier was murdered before founding the X-Men and Captain America is the leader of a task force of superhuman mutant hunters fighting a war against the mutant resistance led by Magneto. But Captain America made a more substantial appearance in X-Men the Animated Series, didn't he, Steve? Oh, yes, he did. In an episode called Old Soldiers. Um, Old Soldiers is excellent, um, though what unfortunately came in the fifth and final series of X-Men, the animated series, where uh, the creators, uh, Eric and Julia Leewald, ran into budget problems. Um, they couldn't afford the art quality that they had on the earlier season and it sadly shows. Um, but the story is where the episode shines. Um, it was loosely based on a classic Chris Claremont, Jim Lee X-Men story where Cap and Wolverine meet in Madripoor in World War II. The late, great Lynn Wayne uh, wrote the script of Old Soldiers, um, working with Cap and Logan as the central focus, and the result was pretty good. Um, I remember that the biggest challenge the show had was just securing the rights to use Cap and the Skull, but to their credit, they were able to make it happen. Um, the story itself focuses on Logan's time in World War II, where Logan was working with the OSS. I'm not sure why Logan was working with American intelligence and not Canadian Army intelligence, uh, or whatever the Canadian equivalent would have been back then, but let's go with it. Um, it might be that Logan was a Canadian agent who was assigned to work with the OSS, but I digress. Um, Logan and Kappa are assigned to work together to rescue a French scientist from a Nazi castle. Um, the scientist betrays them to the Red Skull, and Kappa and Wolvie have to fight their way out. Um, Logan holds a grudge against the scientist for years after this because of the betrayal, but uh, the scientist's daughter um, shows up in the modern age and reveals that her father was a double agent, and his betrayal of Cap and Logan sold his loyalty to the Germans. Um, basically, think of the scientist as Mad Mickelson's character from Rogue One. Um, he was an allied saboteur wrecking the Nazi war machine from inside, and he worked for years in settling, uh, setting back their science programs. It's a touching story about heroism and sacrifice, and Logan and Cap are fun to watch together. Um, but to this day, Old Soldiers is still among the most popular episodes of the last season of Esmond the Animated Series, and I think justifiably so. Um, the story is more centered on Wolvie, uh, since this is an X-Men show, but Cap is portrayed as an equal partner, and he's given the respect that he's due. Uh, Cap even gets in a good speech about why he wears the flag suit. Um, Lawrence Bain plays the voice of Cap, and he sounds like you expect the Sentinel of Liberty sound. Um, I come back to this episode uh, occasionally every so often. Um, I know it's one that the show's creators take pride in having made, and I think for good reason. It is a very memorable episode, too. And I say that because years later, it was one of the few episodes I remembered from the X-Men, the animated series. Uh, but that's not the only World War II X-Men Cap crossover. In the X-Men Evolution series from 2000, Captain America and Nick Fury appear in the episode Operation Rebirth that retells Captain America's origins. He is still made a super soldier during World War II, but in this series, it's through the use of a stasis chamber called Operation Operation Rebirth, and his power king comes at a hefty price. Uh, a defect in the process causes eventual cellular breakdown, forcing Captain America to eventually be put into stasis until a cure can be found. But during World War II, however, we see Steve Rogers in a joint operations with Logan to liberate a POW camp where he saves a boy named Eric Lencher, the future Magneto. One of the last things we learned is that Magneto later steals the Operation Rebirth stasis chamber because while it all but killed Captain America, it worked as a virtual fountain of youth when used by mutants. 
Yeah, X-Men Evolution was a show, I, I, I have to admit, um, was a show I had a hard time getting into because I wasn't crazy about a few of the character takes, but I'll be totally fair here. They got Captain America down right with very few real changes. You don't need to change him at all. Um, about all they tinkered with was is tying Operation Rebirth with Logan's past and having Cap and Logan rescue Magneto from a concentration camp, uh, which, by the way, is exactly what this is, even though they had to call it a, a POW camp to get past the censors. Um, they fudged a few details, but the episode treated Cap fairly and played him straight, which is all, all I could ask for. I did like the interesting twist with the Rebirth Chamber uh, having the opposite effect on mutants, as it also helped explain uh, Magneto's longevity. But anyway, in, in 1994, Spider-Man, the animated series, Captain America made four appearances, including a cameo in the Cat episode, where Peter narrated a flashback scene with John Hardesky, the Black Cat's father, witnessing the experiment that made Steve Rogers into Captain America. He made another appearance in the last three episodes of the five-part Six Forgotten Warriors saga, where Captain America's disappearance after World War II is explained by saying that he and the Red Skull were trapped inside a matter-antimatter vortex for the last 50 years. <clears throat> but back to during but back during the war, Captain America was the leader of the six American warriors. The other five members were given a temporary version of the super soldier serum to varying effects. They they all had different powers. But the six American warriors tried to stop Red Skull and his men from using the doomsday device, and Cap and Red Skull end up fighting as the matter-antimatter vortex turned on. Cap was unable to overpower Red Skull as they both are essentially in the same body and decided to go into the matter-antimatter vortex with him to keep Skull, Red Skull's Doomsday device from ever being used. But Captain America and Red Skull are released from the matter-antimatter vortex by, by Red Skull's son. Cap is joined by the other five American warriors and says a very cheesy line as he holds up his shield high in the air and says, let's make the world safe for democracy. <laughs> and then they rush into the fight. It, it's, it's a big one too. Uh, Kingpin and the Sinister Six even Silver Sable and the Wild Pack are all there fighting too against Red Skull's Doomsday robots. Um, but ultimately, Red Skull's device was about giving his son Electro's powers, and he succeeds. The heroes have to use the matter antimatter vortex to defeat Electro. Red Skull and Cap end up fighting, and Cap takes Red Skull into the matter antimatter vortex just like he did before to stop him. This was a pretty cool five episode story, actually, in an Elseworlds kind of way, and it's one of the reasons I had to elaborate on it. What did you think of it, Steve? I generally enjoyed it. Uh, some choices they made were a bit weird, like making Electro into the son of the Red Skull. But mostly there's some really interesting stuff they did with that story. Um, I dig the feeling they ran afoul of the network with some of the names they used. Uh, the American Warriors was probably used because the censors didn't want them to be called the Invaders, even though they obviously were meant to be the Invaders. Um, I guess the showrunner had the same problem with using the Sinister Six as a name, so they went with the Insidious Six instead. Um, but I like that they used some fairly obscure characters for their Invaders, like uh, Black Marvel, Miss America, and the Destroyer. Uh, Silver Sable is the, just the right guest star for a story involving the Red Skull, too, and that's a character I always like seeing. Um, there's just a bit of network weirdness in a story that's otherwise pretty solid. I have to agree with you across the board on that one, my friend. 
the last three appearances of Captain America and Spider-Man the Animated Series were in the Secret Wars trilogy that adapts the Marvel Superhero Secret Wars limited series that ran from 1984 to 1985. In this poorly adapted version, Captain America was one of the heroes that Spider-Man selected to fight against the villains being led by Red Skull because of his past experience with Red Skull. And as if their animated lives were forever linked, Captain America would appear over and over in Spider-Man's various animated series, like in 2012's Ultimate Spider-Man and the episodes Not a Toy and Guardians of the Galaxy, and in 2017's animated Spider-Man series in the episode School of Hard Knocks. Cat must be a character that uh, writers on these networks must really love using. Um, I can understand why Cap and Spidey would be used in team-ups, uh, though I can I haven't seen too many of those episodes, so I can't comment on specifics. But Cap is a good player uh, character to play off against Spidey. Um, Cap is a character that has it all together in a way that Peter wishes he did, while Cap probably sees real potential for good in Spider-Man. And Cap is also really good as a more serious foil to a jokester like Spidey. You know, speaking of jokers, jokesters, a really stupid and annoying version of Captain America showed up in 2009's The Superhero Squad Show. That was totally for little kids who knew little to nothing about the character. He's a militaristic leader. They would often go rambling about the 1930s and 40s and occasionally even forgets he's no longer in the 40s. <laughs> so I, I'd just like to pretend like that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably for the best. Um, I tend to ignore those types of shows anyway. Although in uh, 2006, um, Captain America appeared in two animated films that were a bit better. Uh, Ultimate Avengers, the movie, and Ultimate Avengers, Rise of the Panther. Um, both uh, films debuted in the same year, and they were loosely based on the Ultimates version of Cap and the Avengers. Now, I'll be honest, I really did not like the Ultimates in the comics at all. I just didn't care for the character takes. Um, but Ultimate Avengers, uh, the films, were better, I felt. Uh, the animated films took inspiration from the Ultimates in terms of the setup and the storylines, while keeping truer to the classic Avengers and the character portrayals. And honestly, I think that was probably the best way to do these animated films like this, even if Ultimates fans might not have liked that too much. Uh, the movies themselves were fine, all in all, not that memorable. I personally really like the stories where we get to see an alt alternate versions of characters, but I missed the whole Ultimates run on Marvel characters for the most part. So I can't really say anything about how the two Ultimate Universe films compared to the comics, but I do know that I love the ultimate take on Captain America in Ultimate Avengers 1 and 2, even if I think him ending up with a Natasha Romanoff was a horrible idea as they are far from compatible. Uh, but in the films, they learned really, they leaned really hard on Cap being a man out of time. And honestly, if I were to write Captain America, that's probably how I would do it too. Everyone he had ever known and almost everything he'd ever loved was gone except his country and his duty. So he embraced them both as that as all that he could all that he had left but his grief and despair over all that he had lost were too much for him and in some sick marriage between his grief and his duty steve rogers had resolved to push himself and get into more and more dangerous situations in hopes of relieving his pain through the honorable death of dying in action while they talk about it in, in more in the second film, I think a perfect example of this is Cap's fight with the Hulk in the first film. Uh, without the context of his grief, it comes across like this, his, you know, I can do this all day thing. But with it, you, you can see that Cap is really hoping that Hulk will finally be the one to kill him. Um, 
Captain America also made several appearances in Marvel Knights motion comic series, including 2009 Spider-Woman Agent of Sword, where Cap joins uh, her as a member of the New Avengers team, like the one being written by Brian Michael Bendis at the time. He was also in 2010's Black Panther, where he traveled to Wakanda during World War II in search of Nazi invaders and ended up facing T'Challa and the Black Panther's father, father T'Chaka. He is in 2013's Ultimate Hulk vs. Wolverine, 2014's Wolverine vs. Sabretooth, and Wolverine Weapon X, but his role, from what I can tell, is pretty minor. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Uh, you would know more about those features than I do. Um, I think the Wakanda story probably was based on a Reginald Hudlin Black Panther story, but that's not a run I was overly invested in. Now, Cap makes some good appearances in the Christopher Priest's run on Panther, though, where the idea of Cap meeting Tashaka is first introduced, uh, if I remember right. Uh, Cap and, and Panther are quite interesting together when uh, T'Challa is written well. Captain America was in two Avengers animated series, too, including 1999's The Avengers United They Stand in an episode called Command Decisions. And he shows up again on Disney XD in uh, 2010 with The Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, starting in the episode Living Legend, where he is discovered in the ice and he joins the team at the end of the episode. In the first season finale episode, A Day Like Any Other, Captain America is captured and replaced by a scroll. In season two, we find out that Captain America was held captive in the Skrull ship for two months, after which he and others escaped the Skrull ship. In the episode uh, Secret Invasion, Captain America returns to Earth and assists the Avengers in bat battling the Skrulls. In Code Red, Iron Man officially makes Captain America the leader. Uh, I still need to see more of Earth's Mightiest Heroes, um, but I can talk about uh, United We Stand a bit. Uh, command decision on uh, United They Stand would mark the second time that Len Wayne worked with El Eric and Julia Leewald on a Cap story. They were the same people who worked on Old Soldiers, which we talked about. Um, Cap uh, tracks down Baron Helmut Zemo and the Masters of Evil as they rob a train, which is all part of uh, a plan by Zemo. Uh, the fun thing about it is, is it's a classic Masters story with some cool additions. Um, I like this lineup a lot with Zemo, Moonstone, Absorbing Man, Whirlwind, Boomerang, Dragonfly, Tiger Shark, and Cardinal among the Masters. It's not a bad episode at all, and it shows what Cap can do through his presence alone, even without intending to necessarily. Um, which is as good a time as any to get into why Baron Helmut Zemo is such a great villain. Um, at first, his motivations are what you see in this episode. Uh, he blames Cap for the death of his father, uh, Heinrich Zemo. But even though he had fascist ideas drilled into him all his life, um, what separates Helmut is that he's not quite a Nazi as much as he is an aristocratic elitist with global ambitions. He wants to rule the world because he thinks he's more qualified, and he thinks he's obligated to rule by right of noble birth. Um, Her Helmut is extremely arrogant, but he's stylish, and he's achieved his goal more than once, which I respect. Um, he's responsible for the Siege of Avengers Mansion, which was one of the Avengers' biggest defeats, and he took over the world with the Thunderbolts con scheme for a while. Um, I'd honestly put Helmut Zemo second only to the Red Skull as Cap villains go. Yes, even over his father. Uh, while this show didn't quite give us that version of Zemo, we do see signs of him elsewhere in other adaptations, um, mainly in Falcon and the Winter Soldier series on Disney+. Uh, Zemo is my favorite Cap villain easily. He is a great villain. We are so on the same page there. He's one of those villains you really love to hate. In the in 
the 2010 uh, in 2010s captain america made several appearance appearances in a variety of lego and anime movies including lego marvel superheroes maximum overload the animated series marvel disc wars the avengers the tele the television special lego marvel superheroes avengers reassembled and the anime series marvel future avengers Oh, speaking of Lego, Cap was also involved in some of the Lego Marvel video games around that time as well. Uh, you could play him as, uh, in Lego Marvel Super Heroes and in Lego Marvel's Avengers, which was based on the Age of Ultron film. Um, I felt like the gameplay was pretty good in those. Uh, they got the shield right both in throwing it and using it for defense. You know, I feel like the only person who feels this way. But I, I just can't get into the Lego movies animation. Uh, it's done in such a way that I can never get lost in the story because I, I can't see past the animation. I, I have the same problem with anime, but I, I, I suppose that's a whole other discussion in its own. Um, Captain America would appear in 2013's Avengers Assemble and Hulk uh, and Agents of Smash series in the episodes Monster No More. He later reappears in the Guardians of the Galaxy episode along with uh, uh, the Avengers, but they're actually scrolls in disguise. And last but not least, in Days of Future Smash, the Year of the Hydra episodes where he appears in the past fighting alongside a time-traveling Hulk during World War II to stop the leader and Red Skull from recreating Dr. Erskine's super soldier serum and augmenting it with gamma rays radiation simultaneously in an alternate future timeline captain america fights to save the world as it was taken over by hydra and run by the leader in this timeline captain america was never frozen but despite being in his late 90s the super soldier serum in his body appeared to all but halt his aging as he's still in peak physical condi condition and only looks like he's in his mid to late 40s Ultimately, Hulk and past Captain America stopped the leader, returning the timeline to its original settings. Last but not least, Cap was in 2015's Guardians of the Galaxy series in the episode Staying Alive and Evolution Rock. <laughs> Sounds like they crammed every idea that they could into that one. Um, I haven't <laughs> seen that one, that one myself, but the leader and the skull sounded like a pretty villainous odd couple. Both of them are really nasty customers. Wow. You know, uh, Steve, I I think those were our, our two really big sections uh, of this uh, episode. Mm. Uh, for the sake of brevity, I will mention that between 1987 and 2020, Captain America has also appeared in 46 video games by my count. Uh, but why don't we talk about the best version of Steve Rogers ever played by Chris Evans in the MCU? Uh, I'd love to, and I agree. Uh, Captain and Tom of Games, too many to list here. Uh, I'll list a few favorites, though. Um, I enjoyed playing Cap in Marvel superheroes and the Marvel vs. Capcom fighting games. Uh, his ultimate move, Final Justice, just made Cap look awesome, and the shield-throwing mechanics were so good in those games. I love his voice, too. That guy just nailed Cap. Uh, there was a 90s arcade game uh, called uh, Captain America and the Avengers, which was cheesy fun, if you like singing quarters in the machine. Um, Cap is also really good in the Marvel Ultimate Alliance games, and uh, the second one is a nice take on the, the Civil War event. I did really like both Marvel Ultimate Alliance games, and Cap was a great character in there, mostly because of his shield. I mean, you could really clear out a room with it. 
oh, Cap was a character I loved using in these games. But um, get back to the MCU and Chris Evans uh, so to answer your question from before. Um, the casting of Chris Evans was a huge decision, and I don't think the MCU would be what it is today if Chris Evans wasn't so convincing as Steve Rogers. I knew he was a good actor even back when he was cast. I mean, I liked him as Johnny Storm in the Fantastic Four movies, and I'd seen him in other things like uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. But when he was cast as Captain America, that was a once-in-a-lifetime casting, just like Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. Evans just understood what made that character tick, and he made us believe he was the Sentinel of Liberty in one film. Uh, that was truly impressive. But more than that, uh, the writers of those films gave us the Captain America that Mark Ruinwald, Stan Lee, and Mark Wade wrote in the comics. That was not a sure thing. As we've discussed, even writers as great as Ed Brubaker sometimes miss that important point. But the films figured out that what made Captain America was not that he was a soldier, is that he was also a good man who believed in kindness, self-sacrifice, and bravery. They also understood that Cap stumbled in human situations sometimes, that he was out of his comfort zone when trying to build relationships while he was off the job. Uh, that was straight out of Gruenwald, and they got that perfectly. Um, all of that was in First Avenger, and it carried over into Evans's performance and all the later films. And this is what the fans, I think, really want to see. The characters we love from the comics brought to life on the big screen, portrayed with the right amount of respect. And man, did we get that with Captain America. Uh-oh, 100%. Chris Evans' portrayal will always be the standard I measure by when it comes to how I see Captain America. In my mind, that is how Captain America looks, sounds, and acts, and everything else is just a bad imitation. To this day, the Captain America trilogy is my favorite in the MCU, and my favorite film among those has got to be The Winter Soldier. But I think I think they were all done really uh, pretty well. But do you have a favorite MCU, uh, Steve? Um, I'd have to go with the Winter Soldier as well, though I agree with you that um, there really isn't a bad Cap film at all. Uh, everything just worked in uh, that film. Um, Bucky was adapted properly. They got exactly the right tone and pace that you'd see in a good Cap comic. And it touched on political themes without hammering the point too hard. Uh, Cap and Natasha are great together in this film. I think that you really kind of need that kind of dynamic. Um, also, uh, you've got epic moments like the elevator scene, which to this day is an iconic Cap moment. Um, yeah. My only issue is in that movie is that Sharon Carter in the MCU is a bit disappointing compared to the comics, especially if you start counting Falcon versus the Winter Soldier, but that's another point. Um, but everything else is just so amazing, and it's not such a big deal. Yeah, I got got to agree with you there. Um, but... <laughs> We're actually out of time here for this episode. Uh, we've been going for quite a while here. And um, while we'd like to uh, say uh, Steve Rogers line, uh, we can do this all day. Uh, we actually can't. <laughs> but honestly, I'm impressed that we were able to cover all of that. Uh, we had to trim some of the content down for time. But all in all, I think we celebrated Captain America's 80th birthday properly. Wouldn't you say, Steve? Oh, I think so. Uh, there's just so much material about Cap that we could have gone into this for hours. Um, I had to trim down a few things as well, uh, less so than with Daredevil, but it might be at, at some point I'll cover those extra details in an article on Comic Crusaders. We'll see. Uh, but in the meantime, I hope this leaves you with a good understanding of what's so great about the Sentinel of Liberty. Yes, and, and let me leave you with the words of Sharon, that Sharon Carter spoke about her Aunt Peggy at her eulogy. Uh, while not directly about Steve Rogers, I don't think you can deny Peggy's influence on him. And I think you can see the things that Sharon mentions in Steve Rogers as well. And the quote is this, compromise where you can, where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is right, 
is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say, no, you move. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.